And I was like, hey, man, why aren't you getting the results we're after? Why do you think? And I go, well, tell me, tell me what you're sleeping. He goes, well, you know, I go to bed at like 9.30 or sometimes 10. And you know, by the time I fall asleep, it's sometimes 10, 30, 11. And then I'm up at 3. What? <laughs> it's like sometimes it's like sometimes 2.30. Yeah, I get up and I work out before work and I leave for work at 4.30. What? Yeah, so like you're getting three and a half, four hours of sleep a night. I go, okay, man, let's see what we can do to get you six hours of sleep and then seven hours of sleep. And for the last two weeks, he's been getting seven hours of sleep and he's put on about six pounds of muscle in two weeks. <laughs> and we're like, oh, yeah, getting leaner. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we see what the problem was. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine. Today, we sit down with Ben Pakulski. He is an international federation of bodybuilding and fitness professional bodybuilder and shares our belief in the importance of feeding the muscle. Ben tells us the best nutrition in the world isn't going to be effective if you aren't moving those muscles effectively, and we couldn't agree more. His constant desire to keep pushing himself got him hooked on bodybuilding, and he uses his passion to help his clients focus on how to really challenge your muscles as efficiently and effectively as possible. Today, we talk about the importance of being challenged in your workout in creating a resilient body through a variety in training. Ben believes in nutritional intervention to remove toxic burdens, focusing inward instead of on external influences and why it's important to be uncomfortable in your workout. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. If you feel like muscle medicine is adding value, go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review. I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Emily. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me. Yeah. So we talk on muscle medicine, how important it is to feed the largest organ in the body, the muscle. We both heard this from our dear friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And we feed this through weightlifting and how we eat, specifically the amount and the timing and the feeding on protein. Why do you think it's so important to feed the muscle appropriately? So many levels, right? Muscles are the, the things that are going to allow us to utilize nutrients. Muscles are the things that can allow us to utilize hormones most effectively, improve insulin sensitivity, help um, metabolize inflammation, metabolize really everything. So using your muscles, first and foremost, is kind of the gateway to longevity and health optimization. And then second, you know, feeding those used muscles is, I think, step two in uh, really living your greatest life, which is kind of the conversation I try to lead. So Ultimately, all the nutrition in the world isn't going to, or the best nutrition in the world isn't going to be effective if you're not uh, using your muscles well or using them at all. And so I believe the first step is always like using your muscles, challenging your muscles, always getting outside your comfort zone and making those muscles do things they're not accustomed to. So, you know, I call it the novel stimulus, right? No matter what it is, make it a novel stimulus. And then, you know, obviously as, as quickly as you can or some more time thereafter, you subject your body to healthy nutrients, which obviously needs to be rooted or grounded in protein because protein has you know, endless benefits in the body from uh, repair and recovery to detoxification and just metabolic function, metabolic regulation. So 
I really believe that, you know, protein should be the, the number one foundation in basically every human's body. And, you know, it's hard to say every human because there may be people out there who some genetic predisposition predisposes them to perhaps being better suited for lower protein diets, but I've yet to meet a lot of those people. Maybe they exist, but in my world anyways, most people do best, whether trying to build muscle or trying to lose fat with grounding and protein. So you talk about the importance of getting uncomfortable in your workout. Talk about that some more. Well, yes and no, right? It doesn't necessarily, when people, when I say uncomfortable, people assume it needs to hurt and that never, doesn't necessarily need to be the case. I mean, like, yes, it needs to be a challenge. It needs to be, but it needs to be a novel stimulus. And when you learn how to intelligently manipulate your training, it doesn't always have to be a, a bad experience. You know, training should be fun. Training should be joyful. Training should be something you enjoy. It doesn't have to be a painful experience that you dread because the reality is your body needs the minimum effective dose above and beyond what it's accustomed to, to adapt. Meaning, um, you know, if, I, if I've been training in a strength training block for X period of time, you know, call it six, eight weeks, whatever it happens to be, that training stimulus needs to progressively go up and up and up every week to still subject myself to a strength training stimulus. However, that being said, there's other types of stimuli that because I'm doing the strength-based stimulus, my body isn't subjected to. And that could be something metabolic. That could be something you know anaerobic. That could be something, who knows, like you name it, right? Any type of a different energetic system in the body that requires a very low level of stimulus because it hasn't been trained during that six or eight weeks. And so it doesn't need to be the world's hardest workout week in, week out. It just needs to be strategic manipulation of the variables and the biochemical response of exercise. And, you know, one of the simplest things I teach, so many people attach to the external stimulus, the external world of exercise. So, you know, how much do you lift or how many sets have you done or how many reps have you done or what exercise did you do? And all that stuff is cool, right? But whether or not you're doing, um, you know, deadlifts or, or CrossFit or TRX or, you know, the shake weight for that matter, like the only thing that really matters is the internal response that gets elicited from that, that external stimulus. So when you start to learn to pay attention to what the different biochemical stimuli are that you can kind of subject your body to, it becomes a lot easier. It becomes a lot more realistic to strategically vary your exercise stimulus to get a faster response, right? We don't always have to just be chasing that hard work. We don't always have to be crushing ourselves because obviously if we're always doing the same type of stimulus, it's always just like you know the same thing over and over again. Obviously, people tend to migrate to the things that they're very good at. So we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Then your only option is I have to work harder. But if you learn to work smarter, you learn to strategically vary your stimulus, you can very easily manipulate the stimuli and get results with actually less overall work, thereby less overall stress on the system. And, you know, you're decreasing stress, you're decreasing inflammation, you know, continuing that conversation. There's a lot of people out there who are living this ma massively stressed life, right? And that's just from the stresses of day to day. You know, you wake up and you've got a cell phone, you've got work, you've got to drive to work, you've got, you know, people honking at you in New York City, you've got family stress, financial stress, all these things are sympathetic stress. They're, they're you know, stresses to the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And if you add exercise on top of that, for a large percentage of the population, exercise becomes a distress rather than a stress. So, because you're just stacking all this sympathetic stress on top of one another, and then people wonder why, you know, oh, geez, I'm not getting results, or geez, I'm getting fatter from exercising, or geez, I can't even look at a carbohydrate and I get fat. Well, yes, because your sympathetic nervous system is so over dominant that your body doesn't respond to 
glucose anymore. Your body is always in a high state of sympathetic arousal. So it's always got higher cortisol. It's probably got higher adrenaline. It's probably got higher amounts of inflammation um, and all these things that are literally preventing people from ever having a great body or being you know, able to sleep or being able to relax and leading down that path of type 2 diabetes and, and high amounts of anxiety because you never give your body a time to really recover from stress. So I'm really an advocate of making exercise a positive stress and always following the, the principle of minimum effective dose rather than maximum effective dose. And that being said, many people can get away with maximum effective dose because they have better genetic ability to you know, maybe get rid of inflammation or uh, recycle cortisol or whatever it happens to be. But I think most people who maybe aren't you know, under 8% body fat all the time need to learn how to cyclically rotate through different types of internal stimuli. I'm going to pull it back for a sec. Can you give us like a broad scope? I know you're an international federation of bodybuilding and fitness lifter. And I'm also curious, like how, where do you start with your clients? So I'd love to hear your story. And then sure. when a client comes to you, how do you break it down? Sure. So um, originally from Canada, uh, grew up in Canada as an, you know, son of a family of overweight alcoholics and uh, nobody had ever been in the gym. Nobody had ever really graduated high school. So my bodybuilding career was almost out of necessity. It was me running away from um, what seemed like the inevitable reality of me being an overweight addict of some kind. And, you know, when I was 12 years old, I started acknowledging the fact that I just wanted to be fit and I just wanted to be healthy and I wanted to take control of my life. Um, and being from Canada, it's a very um, unlikely thing for someone to become a professional athlete. They're, you know, Canada stresses academics not athletics. So for me to have, um, you know, kind of transcended the ranks of Canadian bodybuilding, there's literally one person a year that becomes a professional bodybuilder from Canada. And of those, you know, one people a year for the last 20 years prior to maybe 30 years prior to me, none of them had ever made it to you know, any substantial ranks. I think there'd been one, maybe two prior to me ever that had made it to a substantial rank in professional bodybuilding. So it was kind of an unknown thing. Um, you know, and, and the reason maybe that I excelled was because I never compared myself to local people. I always compared myself to the best in the world. And I sought the um, best people, the best information, the best knowledge, the best coaches, and whatever I could find to make myself inevitably get to that point is kind of the way that I looked at it. I just believed in myself. I believed I could do it. And I just wouldn't take no as an answer. So I was very blessed to have found some really bright and brilliant mentors and brilliant coaches along the way who helped speed my path. And when I was 18 years old, I decided I wanted to be a professional bodybuilder. And there was really nobody who I could look up to in professional bodybuilding for advice on training, for advice on nutrition, for advice on supplementation, and someone who just kind of got it all. You know, I looked and I literally, you know, scoured the, the the bodybuilding world and tried to find that person. Where did that desire come from? So like 18, you're like, I want to do bodybuilding. Well, I'll tell you where it came from. When I was 16 years old, actually maybe 15 years old, I picked up my first Flex magazine and I said, it's absolutely disgusting and I don't ever want to look like that. Then I started to train and I was training for sports. I was a very good baseball and hockey player. So my coaches said, hey man, if you want to go professional, you have to start lifting weights. And because I, you know, historically came from a family of obese, unhealthy people, Weight training for me was, you know, so far outside of the box. Um, but once I tried it, first I hated it, and then I got hooked. And uh, I just love the idea that I could do something, and my body would actually start to change. I started to see relatively quick results, not nearly as fast as some of my friends. 
but that was it. It was like this desensitization that happened. It's like, you know, I was like, I just want to put on 10 pounds of muscle and get 10 pounds leaner. Was, you know, at first I started, I was 150 and I was like, I just want to be 170. And then I just want to be 190 with abs. And then I just want to be 210 with abs. And when it, you know, like you reach a certain point, you're like, okay, I just want to be 280 with abs. <laughs> and it just keeps, there's this desensitization that almost happened by accident. Going up and up. Yeah. I just, you know, it's, it's that constant desire to be better. Everyone thinks, you know, when I get to this point, it's like, when I make a million dollars, I'm going to be happy. And you make a million, I'm like, okay, I just want 5 million. It right. never ends, right? It's, it's that constant desire for more. And that was what it was for me was I just, you know, voraciously attacked those goals and just kept achieving them. So I set a higher goal. And then eventually everyone's like, Hey man, you know, you can actually, well, actually, I don't think anybody thought I could do it for a living except for myself. Um, I just entered my first contest when I was done uh, university and I won. And at that point, everyone goes, Hey, you know, you could really probably do this professionally. And people started paying me to uh, compete. So I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. This is, you know, I was done by this point, I was done university and uh, I was actually just got a pharmaceutical sales job. I did my first contest so that I could look good in my suit because I wanted to get in good shape. And, you know, I won the show and people started paying me about as much as I was going to make in pharmaceutical sales. So for me, it was kind of a no brainer. <laughs> So moving along, you asked what I do with my clients when we start. Yeah. So where do you start with your clients? Sure. Well, obviously everyone's coming in a different place, right? So, you know, ironically, I'm kind of writing my book right now on, on exactly how to do that. So I can give you a bit of an insight. And I think the first thing, and I'm sure you'll agree with this kind of stuff, is some type of nutritional intervention to remove the toxic burden on their body. So, you know, the one thing that I know I can control, I hope I can control in people is, is trying to ask them to remove the things that are stressing their body like i can't remove somebody's job i can't remove their their fights with their spouse they can't necessarily remove their financial stress but i could probably do something to remove all the toxins they're putting into their body or at least make them pay attention to the toxins they're putting into their body so i start asking Which them might to have pay a down effect right to the other person exactly well yeah that's it right so it's, it's like you know the way i look at it is I, you know i have these call them levers basically like at any point in somebody's transformation I have this certain number of, you know, call it about 10 arbitrary levers that I can pull. And I always try to kind of pull the one that will make the biggest change with the smallest lifestyles change, but get them the biggest result. So for me, I think for a lot of people, it's looking at their life and subjectively saying, hey, if we change this, this will make you better. So for most people, it's first pulling out those toxic burdens, those toxic stresses in their body. And you know, sometimes it's food and sometimes it's supplements and sometimes it's stimulants and sometimes it's alcohol, whatever it is that we can start pulling some of this toxic burden off of their sympathetic nervous system and off their GI tract, obviously. And the second thing we're going to try to address is sleep. And oftentimes when you start taking those sympathetic stressors away, sleep gets better on its own. So you know, starting to pay attention to our environment and what goes into our body is kind of my first intervention. Do you think someone could have their nutrition dialed in, their programming dialed in, and if they're not sleeping, they're not going to hit their, their goals and get the results they want? So every six months, I take on 30 high-level coaching clients, and I have one guy who I just spoke with last night. He's literally that guy. Like I've never met somebody who's more meticulous with his a logging of his nutrition and everything down to the gram that I send him, he consumes. And he writes down every supplement that goes in his body. He's got like spreadsheets. And, uh, you know, I talked to him last night and I was like, Hey man, why aren't you getting the results we're after? Why do you think? And I go, well, tell me, tell me what are you sleeping? And he goes, well, you know, I go to bed at like nine 30 or sometimes 10. And you know, by the time I fall asleep, it's sometimes 10 30 or 11. And, and then I'm up at three. What? <laughs> it's like sometimes it's like sometimes two thirty. Yeah, I get up and I work out before work and I leave for work at four thirty. 
I'm like, what? Yeah. So like you're getting three and a half, four hours of sleep a night. I go, okay, man, let's see what we can do to get you six hours of sleep and then seven hours of sleep. And for the last two weeks, he's been getting seven hours of sleep and he's put on about six pounds of muscle in two weeks. <laughs> and we're like, oh, yeah, getting leaner. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, we see what the problem was. So the answer is absolutely right. And and it's all comes down to the autonomic nervous system. And if you if your body can't be in a parasympathetic state when you know after after the gym or when you're sleeping because you're so uh, riled up. And if you don't have enough time to kind of fluctuate through those natural daily circadian rhythms that require sleep for detoxification of the organs, detoxification of the brain, and uh, for optimizing the digestive tract, like you literally just can't build muscle. It's, it's an impossibility. So sleep is one of the top things that I address. You know, for, I believe it's always, you know, starting with the environmental stuff because that's easy if we can pull that out. And then from there, we maybe look at the digestive tract, if we can support that a little bit, support some digestion. And then obviously, again, on top of the list is sleep. It would be interesting to see that guy's blood work in terms of like inflammatory markers. like. Right. So the irony of it is he's in New York and, and we were talking about it yesterday that I'm actually going to send him to Gabrielle. So he needs someone in New York to do his hormone panels because that's exactly where we're living. And we're like, man, you're just... So he told me he last time he went to his doctor, his testosterone was... I won't say the numbers and stuff, but it was low. And the doc goes, oh, oh, you're fine. What? <laughs> like, let's, let's go get you a doctor. It's a normal range. <laughs> what other kind of things, I mean, you touched on some of them, do you think are missing from people's training programs? So we hit on sleep, removing toxins. Yeah, so training, uh, training is, you know, where I live, right? Like training is what I'm, you know, I'm kind of good at and what I've been studying for the last 20 years of my life. And so many people are consumed and focused on, as I just said, the external, which is load and you know progressive overload and the number of sets and the number of reps and what exercise and how many exercises. And they're so consumed with the external that they pay no attention to the internal. And I'll explain what that means. Ultimately, the objective, if I'm trying to transform my body, is I need to challenge muscles. And people don't get that consciously, right? They, they don't understand that the reason I lift weights or the reason I do cardio is to challenge my muscles. So the muscles create an adaptation. They create a response inside my body. And if you can shift somebody's focus from this external focus of like how much have I lifted today or how many sets and reps have I done to shifting their focus toward an internal stimulus, which basically means rather than seeking completion, of an exercise or completion of a rep or completion of a set, I want to seek challenge. I want to seek to how hard can I challenge this muscle? Um, your whole world flips upside down. It gives you this really um, amazing connection with your body and allows you to actually challenge your body as efficiently as, and as effectively as possible. So when I'm doing a bicep curl or when I'm doing a dumbbell bench press or something like that, the ideal scenario, the, the most ideal scenario is I want my the muscle I'm training to do 100% of the work. We know that's not possible, but we want to get as close as we possibly can to doing 100% of the work. The body has evolved to survive. So the, the last thing in the world the body wants to do is fatigue a muscle or challenge one muscle. The body tries to distribute load relative to the size and proportion of its musculature. So if, it's, if you have you know, your shoulder, your front delts are really well developed and your triceps are really well developed, you sit down and do a bench press, your body will put yourself into a mechanical position to use those muscles more. The only way that you're ever going to develop a weak body part is if you learn to set your body up to advantage the muscle you're trying to train, to make sure that it has the greatest mechanical advantage to work. 
it sounds complicated, but it's really simple stuff. Like it's not, it's not rocket science planning stretch. It's just getting away from what your body wants to do and doing what you want it to do. Cause realizing your body, it's the analogy is if I, if I'm moving, you know, I'm moving tomorrow, I'm, I'm moving house and I want to move some big furniture and you call your five friends over which friend are you going to get to move the, the fridge and the sofa? You're going to get your biggest friends because you, you know that, well, that's going to probably be lightest for them. It's probably going to be the least amount of stress for them and they'll be able to do it. But your brain does the same thing. Your brain goes, God, I got this big muscle over here. Let me just shift into a position to make this my prime mover. And that way it's going to actually be less total work to me because this guy, it's pretty easy for him. Right. Whereas my idea is the opposite. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to advantage this particular muscle, whichever one you happen to decide it to be. So that's a really, really important part. And I think most people miss the idea of learning how to execute exercise for your body. So, Emily, obviously you're built very differently than me. You know, I'm 270 pounds right now. I lay down on a bench press with a set of dumbbells. You lay down on a bench press with a set of dumbbells. Mechanically, that's a completely different exercise. The musculature being utilized is completely different. But yet everybody assumes that, oh, well, it's a bench press and it's working my chest. No, it's not. It's working different parts of the chest in different amounts uh, for different people. So, you know, objectively, you need to lay down and learn how to set yourself up to advantage that muscle you're trying to train, whatever it happens to be, whether it be quads or glutes or hamstrings or, or back or whatever, right? You need to learn to set up for your body. And I've kind of made my business teaching people how to do that for their body and trying to simplify it as much as possible. And it's really not complicated. It just sounds complicated. How many people come to you and have been working out regularly? but need a massive form technique cleanup? Everyone. 100% of the people. Everyone. Yeah, 100% of the people. Because even, even myself, having been doing this stuff for a long time, as soon as you start to introduce hard work, quote-unquote hard work, your body is always going to resort back to what is mechanically uh, most efficient for it. So if you ever go to a time where you're, you know, where you're just mindlessly working hard, your body's always going to resort back to, you know, path of least resistance. You know, whatever is mechanically most efficient to use the least amount of muscle. That's just life. So, you know, I, I recommend kind of reestablishing these things at least twice a year. So for me, I call them primer phases. So we go through a primer phase where you're priming your muscles for growth. You're priming your nervous system to do these exercises most effectively. Uh, and typically they're lasting anywhere from four to six weeks just kind of relearning the skill of exercise, relearning the movement patterns, relearning stability, because stability is probably the number one most important thing in building muscle. And that's really it. So like literally every single person uh, that's ever come in my door, you know, massively benefits from improving their execution from the lowest level beginner to the highest level professional you know, athlete that I train. There's such an amazing opportunity to make progress, never working harder, actually working less hard in many instances, just redirecting tension. So taking tension off those body parts that are strong and putting them on the ones that you want to train. Are these priming phases? Are these like prehab? Because I know you talk about like some exercises that are like the game changer. Is that, is it, is it a prehab? Because you're talking about mobility. Yeah. So I don't necessarily call it that. I don't, I don't claim to be an exercise rehabilitation expert. I'm just trying to uh, maximize people's stability and mobility so that they can maximally recruit the muscle they're trying to train. So a lot of people are limited in what they can train based on their inability to access certain ranges of motion. So I don't call these things prehab at all. Like a uh, primer phase has takes into consideration absolutely no rehabilitation. 
it takes it, it basically what it's doing is saying here here's exactly how you need to do it figure out how you need to do that and if there's something limited well then that there's a different solution for you so like if you have a shoulder injury or a hip injury i have an approach that i uh, advocate to alleviate these things but it has nothing to do with me claiming to uh, rehab things it's just you know the simple approach for the listeners is find what your active range of motion is find out what you could, your muscles can actively control and stay there don't go outside your active range of motion because going outside your active range of motion is going to cause inflammation and injury um, so assess your active range of motion on every exercise and often in every set and if you need to increase it to be able to access a certain exercise then we activate muscles with we, we actually just use some uh, isometrics in the shortened range typically so really simple six to ten second isometrics that allows me to go a little bit further typically allows me to go a little bit further into the range i'm trying to access and that's just you know provided somebody's neurologically healthy they have a healthy ability to adapt to a, a stress or a stimulus most people will adapt it with a very short amount of time and gain more stability in those ranges you talked a little bit about like variety and training to kind of push capacity, like our personal capacity. Gabrielle is trying to get me to work out to max fatigue, which she describes as wanting to vomit basically uh, <laughs> three times a week. Yeah. And she's like, I think capacity is way higher than what you're pushing it. I love kettlebells. They come natural. They're easy to get form correct for me. But for example, I've been Playing. I was looking uh, online and you have like these Sunday squat sessions. I was like, oh, I should really be starting to push my capacity in other ways, push myself out of my comfort zone. Yeah, create resilience. Hate right? back squatting. Maybe I should start doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's a type of thing where, you know, my uh, tagline is we're ultimately trying to create a brilliant mind and resilient body. I think everybody wants to be resilient. And, and that means, well, if I want to you know, hop up and sprint or jump or squat, I should be able to do those things. You know, I, I don't want to have to be restricted by this fact that, hey, I, I'm only good, you know, at, at this hip hinge because I only practice kettlebell swings. Like, no, I want to be able to, you know, do the splits. I want to be able to dunk a basketball. I want to be able to sprint hundred meters and not tear my groin. Like I want to be I want to be resilient. And diversity in your training is massive. You know, like I, I do yoga, I do running, I do as many different types of modalities that I can possibly subject my body to so that I create a resilient body. And I agree with the idea of you need to work hard, but you should be working hard on the things that you're very good at all the while at the same time working on those things that you're not very good at. Where keeping in mind, like if you're if you're not a good squatter, you're not squatting to to the point where you're gonna puke. Like they just or maybe you can, but you're not gonna right. be using your muscles no. properly, right? You're gonna be using momentum, you're gonna be using you're gonna be challenging your body in a different way, producing acid rather than you know, challenging muscles. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I'm sure this is probably a common question you get that people ask a lot is, do you think men and women should be training and eating differently? Obviously, it depends on what their goal is. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's such a person-dependent thing. The only thing I typically would do different for men and women, I mean, not the only thing, one of the things I'll definitely do different for men and women, is vary the amount of upper and lower body work they do. Because obviously, men are typically you know, subjectively wanting more upper body work and women want more lower body work. The women are typically not after massive amounts of hypertrophy. So my, my approach then would be we're going to train larger body parts more often, meaning we're just trying to get a better metabolic response, knowing that the larger muscle groups have a better metabolic capacity. So I'll train larger body parts more frequently than with men, whereas men may have a more balanced approach to their training. As far as nutrition, there's a lot of data that suggests women actually do a better job handling carbohydrates 
again, subjective, right? So, I, I mean, I have uh, my wife, for example, is 107 pounds. When she died, she's 300 grams of carbohydrates a day and gets leaner. I have guys who are on 120 grams of carbohydrates a day and they're getting fatter. So it's a very subjective thing. So kind of hard to say, but you know, I think the biggest paradigm shift for women is stop thinking lifting weights is going to make you bigger because it's ridiculous. So how do you shift that? Because we have a lot of women in New York City that are doing yoga and bar and Tracy Anderson and to really shift their mindset. I mean, they look at the kettlebell on the floor and, you know, they give it like a side eye. Like, how do you start to shift that mental perception around weights? Well, um, you know, one of the ways that one of the stories I tell women is, you know, you walk them down the path of, you know, what is cardio? You know, we'll, we'll say, well, you know, you're going to walk on the treadmill or something like that or a step mill. Okay, what is your objective when you're doing cardio? Well, my objective is to burn calories. I want to burn fat. Okay, well, what burns fat? What, what are you trying to do when you're on the step mill or treadmill? Well, I want to get my heart rate up. Okay, well, what gets your heart rate up? Well, it's contracting muscles that gets your heart rate up. Oh, okay, so what we're doing is we're walking on, the, on this machine for 40 to 60 minutes in the most inefficient mechanism possible, trying to contract as few muscles as possible, trying to get my heart rate up. That doesn't make a lot of sense. How about we do you know, maybe 20 minutes of something that maybe contracts a larger percentage of your muscle fibers, actually challenges your muscles a little bit, creates a little bit of a challenge to your muscular system, thereby asking it to use more nutrients, asking it to upregulate its mitochondrial systems so that you actually burn more calories at rest. And, you know, most women kind of open their eyes and go, oh, and, you know, even just like you know, put them on a weight, a weight training program for four weeks and let them realize, like, hey, you're not going to look like me. You know, you're not going to look like you've been working out for 10 years. Those women who work out for 10 years, it takes time, you know, and, and even then they, they realize, like, oh, you know, they don't put on tremendous amounts of muscle. And, you know, there's so many levels. It's, it's stability. It's strength. It's um, you know, metabolic efficiency, allowing them to eat more food rather than having to starve themselves. But it's, I mean... The, the reality is I, I truthfully believe you can't change somebody's mind. You, know, you can you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. So I just kind of present the information. And if they ultimately come looking for it, great. And if not, that's okay too. I'm not going to try to shove something down your throat that you don't want to believe. But when you come looking for intelligent muscle building information, I'll be here to, to help you. Yeah. So like meeting people where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see people who have hypermobility in their joints? So we see a lot of women with Hashimoto's who have unstable joints from a connective tissue perspective, and they have a hard time maintaining muscle mass. Have you seen that or worked with clients who almost like they're, they're double jointed? Like you have to see like, sure. Oh, put a little bend in your elbows. Like how do, do you work with those clients? And if you do, uh, how do you do that? Yeah, I I've worked with many and I, you know, I don't know that there's a solution other than the way that I train always with everybody is 100% control. That's kind of the deciding factor for me, or that's kind of the number one um, base of everything I do is um, exude 100% control. You know, we call it ownership. Do you own that rep? Uh, do you own that weight? If you don't own the weight, then you're wasting your time. So no matter if you have lax joints or, or hypermobility or you're super tight, you need to exude complete control over weight at all points in the rep. So I talk about not even inches. I talk about owning every millimeter, like every smallest increment that you possibly can during an exercise, just to show that you're in absolute control and you're not being shoved around by the weight, right? So many people are so dependent on momentum and, and just throwing weights around, slinging weights around to get them, get them through an exercise or get them through a set. Whereas, you know, my, 
business focuses on ownership and control. Um, and I think that in itself will help people to prevent um, any type of negative effect from weight trading when they have this hypermobile situation. And just keeping with them what they're capable of, realizing that there's a certain point when that joint goes back the opposite way, that the forces are negatively impacting the joint and actually, you know, bending it the opposite direction. So we just keep them, you know, uh, observing and uh, making sure they're staying within what they're capable of. This idea of control, I love it because sometimes, you know, we do in the clinic a lot of functional movement. And I know functional, just the word in itself has, you know, had its heyday and ups and downs in the in the movement world in general but in terms of like bodybuilding versus functional movement or functional strength training i think each has their place but i think underlying all of it is not cranking through reps and sets as fast as you can but having that underlying control absolutely so with crossfit obviously the unfortunate reality of CrossFit, I, I think CrossFit could be an amazing thing if it wasn't always like how much can you get done in a small amount of time? Because inevitably when you're doing that, it's like, well, I don't care what it looks like. I just want to get done. And that's a big problem. Right? So that's where I want to use as much momentum as I can. I want to cheat as much as I possibly can. I want to use as little muscular effort as I possibly can. That's CrossFit. And the unfortunate reality, as you understand, is when you're using momentum, you're no longer actively controlling exercises. And when you say active control, people what should go off in people's mind is active movement is caused by muscles. Muscles actively move bones. Passive movement is what happens in CrossFit, and passive movement is absorbed by passive structures, ligaments, tendons, joints, um, bones ultimately. So that's the problem, right? Is So what I advocate is everything must be actively controlled, both concentric and eccentric. So if you're doing a negative movement, you know, the eccentric part of a range, it's not just falling into the bottom of a range, it's actively pulling myself into the bottom of a range. So I know the antagonist muscle is actively contracting to take me somewhere rather than ma- me passively relaxing like a like macaroni, you know, re- relaxing like a noodle into an exercise. No, like I want this thing to pull me there so both the concentric and the and the eccentric are active ranges. And that's a big thing, like just acknowledging if you're trying to maintain health and you're trying to challenge muscles, it's so much more efficient and effective to pay attention to what's actively moving you there. Yeah, I love that cue. We give that a lot, especially when we're teaching people to squat, to like pull themselves down versus the drop down. You have this NOS, neurological overload sets. Can yeah. Sure. Well, when I started in um, bodybuilding, I truthfully knew that I needed a lot of volume to respond. So um, you know, early on in my career, I did a lot of high volume exercises uh, or high, a lot of high volume exercise. And that's what it took. Like um, for me to, you know, at one point in my life, be 318 pounds of muscle, I did a lot of work. You know, I, for the first seven years of my career, everything I did was strength based. Everything I did was like trying to get as strong as possible. And that stopped working. Like I couldn't get any stronger. So I was like, okay, what do I do? Well, so if I can do, you know, 10 reps with 300 pounds and it seems like I'm having a hard time getting stronger because now my joints are starting to get beat up. I would do 10 sets, rest 20 seconds, do another, or sorry, 10 reps, rest 20 seconds, do another 10 reps. So I just started manipulating the other variables of exercise. I started manipulating, you know, density of the workout, which is the rest period. I started manipulating, you know, the volume of the workouts. And what I found was when I started manipulating uh, effectively what is a quadruple drop set, where I started just adding more total work into each set, it allowed me to do less overall sets and reps, 
uh, and get a greater response. So basically kind of what Gabrielle says to you is like, hey, instead of doing 20 sets, let's do 10. Let's take them way further. Let's, how far can we possibly take that set? So I got myself down when I was competing to be maybe doing, you know, I don't know, eight sets for a body part, but every set was taken to complete momentary failure, which is, you know, like I didn't just fail with a hundred pounds. I went to 80 and then 60 and then 40. And I literally couldn't contract that muscle again with any amount of weight. So, okay, I'm done. Rest, you know, two minutes, do it again. So when I started doing that, I was like, gosh, you know, I really started to grow. So that, and I started just called calling that, that, that my variation of the quadruple drop set was called neurological overload sets, which is basically, like I say, a quadruple drop uh, with no rest in between and then resting you know, 90 seconds to two minutes and then often doing it again. Typically, it's just one set per exercise I do with this NOS uh, stuff. And that was something, like I said, that works really, really well for six to 12 weeks. You know, I, my, that's why I advocated I created a 40-day program. Like, that works extremely well. Like, silly how well that works for six weeks. Why? Not because it's a magic formula, because it's a novel stimulus. Most people have never worked that hard in their life. And when they do, they, they respond. You know, our average weight gain over a six-week uh, trial was like 17 pounds or something because people are just seeing such an amazing amount of adaptation because they were working so hard and they were getting leaner because they're improving their metabolic efficiency so much. So that's what happened with that, and that's where that created. And I don't advocate doing that all the time. I don't think it's the solution to solve everybody's problems. But if you've never done, which and, and this is kind of a bold claim, but most people, as you may or may not you know, don't work hard. They think they're working hard. They hashtag crushed it today. And, and it's a comedy show, right? It, it's a comedy show. Like people come in my gym and they go, oh, you know, I'm never working out with you again because, you know, most of them make it through the first two or three sets and they're in the toilet throwing up their breakfast. So and when you start putting people through hard work, they don't realize how much they can actually grow and they start giving up the excuses of genetics and, you know, I don't have the genetics to build muscle. No, you just don't work hard. You don't think things correctly. Does the neurological overload sets, does this help with maintaining longevity of the joints? You know, you kind of mentioned, oh, your joints were... Absolutely not. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. not. Okay. Absolutely not. No, this is this is completely... Like crush hard. it. Yeah, crush, <laughs> crush yourself for six weeks. And I think everybody needs to go through that, right? Once you've established your ability, you've gone through a primer phase, you've established your ability to like, hey, I can actually control this this weight and this exercise with the muscle I'm trying to train with perfection 100% of the time. I have 100% ownership. Okay, now I can go on and, and, and subject myself to this, you know, effectively bone crushing muscle building workout. It's not a beginner thing, basically, right? Right. So you mentioned your pro, so MI40, muscle intelligence 40, 40 days, 40 seconds. Yeah, 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I like to keep the workout short, keep the sets short. And, uh, 40 days was about all the time that I could handle before I felt like it was starting to break me. Yeah. Do you feel like as decade over decade, your workout has started to change to maintain the health of your joints or, you know, I mean, for, especially in New York, we have a lot of people who want efficiency and you mentioned that like your workout is really efficient. It's, it's probably, I mean, it's the most efficient thing you can do. I mean, I believe that I, I get to travel the world, learn from the brightest people. The way we train is the most efficient because the objective is not lifting weight, right? The objective is how much can I challenge this muscle in the shortest amount of time possible? Um, you know, everyone I come, everyone that comes to train with me says, hey, this is the best way you could possibly train. It's not easy because it actually takes work. 
but it's focused work. And we learn how to take away inefficiencies, acknowledging the fact that my body always wants to cheat. My body is born to cheat. It's, it's adapted. It's evolved for survival. And survival means I'm trying it. When I pick up a weight, I don't want one muscle to do it. I want all the muscles to do it because obviously one muscle doing it predisposes me to injury or fatigue, which I don't want. I want all the muscles to do it. But if I'm training, I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want all the muscles to do it. I want one muscle to do it. I want to, I want to be as, as ultimately inefficient as possible. I want to work one muscle, not 10. So that's why this, this type of training becomes the most effective as far as time and results because you know we learn how to isolate muscle completely, eliminate any efficiency, inefficiencies, which is, like I say, extraneous movement or momentum and uh, challenging the muscles. So like literally we get workouts now, I do workouts now that are, 20 to 30 minutes and I'm crushed. And it's not, it's not just like the bro split of one body part a week. It's, you know, how many body parts can I get into this workout and still keep it under 30 to 40 minutes, right? Yeah. I'm trying to be challenging muscle as much as possible. And, and when you're good at that, you can get a tremendous amount of work into, you know, six to eight maximum 10 sets for only a big body part, like say back or quads or something. But that's ultimately the idea, right, is how much work can I get done in the shortest amount of time possible? And how does that compare to when way back in the day you were first training for competitions or? Different objective. So now, you know, talking about longevity and joint health, I'm actually trying to figure out how I can eat less and still perform well with my determining factor being my strength. So I want to maintain strength, 100% strength. And not necessarily build any muscle. Like if I lose muscle, I'm cool with that. If I maintain muscle, I'm probably cool with that. As long as I maintain a, a strong, resilient physique, uh, I'm pretty happy with that. So back in the day, my objective was week on week or month on month, progressing volume typically, right? So I wanted my work to, I wanted to do more work or I wanted to do better work or I wanted to challenge the muscles more every single week so that I could eat more to grow more. And I just equated like, increase the volume a little bit. Therefore, I should increase the food a little bit. Thereby, deductive reasoning says I'll get bigger. And usually it did. Now, it's a completely different scenario. My objective now is, is resilience, joint stability, and, and joint integrity. So I, I, you know, I can play with my kids until I'm 90 years old. I want to be able to do all these cool things like yoga and running and basketball and, and whatever, water skiing. So I want to be very, very stable stable and strong. Um, so thereby my objective is, okay, I don't need to do quite as much work, but I still want these muscles to be big and strong and you know, ultimately hard and look good. <laughs> so uh, volume is very, very different. Do you encourage your kids to have variety in what they're doing? Yeah. So more specific? one guy you should have on the podcast who was awesome is Pedram Shojai. He's the author, author of the Urban Monk book. And I had him on my podcast and um, one of the best terms I got from him was he he wants to make his kids three-dimensional. And I was like, what does that mean? He said, well, yeah, I want to make them three-dimensional from a perspective of they can do anything at any time. So, you know, we have them doing jujitsu. We have my kids doing Muay Thai. We have them doing gymnastics. We have them doing hockey and, and uh, horseback riding and, and baseball and trying to expose them to as many things as possible you know, ultimately, and not even forcing them in any way, like, hey, if you want to go do this, go. If you don't, go. I don't. Like, if, you know, and same with, like, schoolwork and reading and stuff. Like, we have kind of a framework in our house where every day you have to do something to build your body, something to build your mind, and something to build your soul. And as long as they do that every day, I don't care what it is. Like, if they choose to read a book, if they choose to do some math, if they choose to, I don't know, do some studying on anything, 
whatever it is, as long as you built your mind today, you can tell me at dinner time what you did to build your mind or build your, build your body and build your soul. I'm happy. So giving them that freedom and that framework seems to really simplify life both for them and for me and takes the pressure off of a parent to always feel like, Oh, I have to you know, teach them something today or they have to learn something or they should be at this particular level relative to everybody else. I think if you give them that consistency, you know, and, and not comparing them to everybody else, they'll kind of be their own guiding light. They'll be their own deciding factors. Yeah. I love that. How do we carry that into adulthood? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's that simple framework, right? And that's the simplicity of life. It's create a framework for yourself. And for me, it's like, you know, what are your five objectives today? And what are your five disciplines today? That's it. Like, how do I, how do I uh, execute daily discipline? And how do I have my, make sure I have my five primary objectives and, and whatever that happens to be, right? So that's how I live my life. It keeps it really nice. simple. And discipline can be something as simple as like, I floss and brush my teeth before I put anything into my body. That, that's a big deal. You know, like get up every morning, floss your teeth. A lot of people don't want to do that. Get up every morning, brush your teeth, and then you can have your water and then you can have your coffee. Or maybe it's like the 10 minute meditation or it's like 30 minute meditation or if it's uh, going for a walk outside or if it's, you know, spending 15 minutes unplugged with your wife or your husband, your, you know, like whatever it is, you have to write those disciplines into your life and say, I always do these things, you know, rules for your life. Right. I love it. I feel like sometimes life feels very stressful, but at the same time, we're given everything. Like we don't have to worry about where our water comes from or where our food comes from. And so it can feel cushy and to create that structure and that discipline, again, just gives like a, a framework to our day to keep us disciplined. Because sometimes for, for example, a lot of our patients, like just doing our exercises or even just getting to the gym is a big step in terms of creating discipline in their own life. Yeah. And then you can go to bed at the end of the day, knowing you accomplished what you set out to accomplish. And, and that is huge, right? Like so many people can't go to bed because they have the, you know, the, the spinning beach ball of death. Uh, their brain is just spinning on all these things they have to do. Whereas if you set your beginning of the day and you say, here's the five things I need to get accomplished today. And here's the five disciplines I want to execute on. Well, if you do them, you win. If you don't, you don't, you know, and it's pretty easy to go at the end of the day, like, shit, I haven't done my meditation yet. We'll sit down and do a 10 minute meditation or, Hey, I haven't lost my, whatever it is, you know, like it's, it's easy to kind of, take that one hour at the end of the day or that two hours at the end of the day and go, oh, geez, I have to finish these things. And then you're like, hey, I can celebrate. I won the day. Yeah, I love it. Is it a lot of online programming or programs people can do? Yeah. So the business is primarily focused around, uh, you know, over the last seven, eight years now, the number one thing people come to me for is um, personalized programming. So like I get people coming from all around the world to, to teach them how to exercise and to develop programs. So that's kind of where we're shifting the business to. There's been so many uh, offers and opportunities over the last seven years on things we could do. And, you know, everybody's always compelled to do the next hot thing or the next shiny red ball. But we realized that everyone's always going to be exercising and everyone's always going to want a program that's customized for themselves. So we're just going to revert to that completely where it's, um, you know, we're, that's what we're really good at. It's our wheelhouse. It's like teaching you how to train for your body so that weak body parts are no longer a thing because I don't believe weak body parts are really a thing. It's just an inefficiency uh, of your body of putting tension through a body part and you can just simply change it by learning how to change the setup uh, and then programs based on your goal. So if you're trying to build a certain body part, if you're trying to build muscle, if you're trying to maintain muscle, if you're trying to get strong, if you're trying to lose fat, whatever it happens to be, we're doing hundreds of programs effectively every month for people um, who you know, want to build their greatest body and live the greatest life. And there's a, there's also a framework that I've created around living your greatest life and, you know, in a body you love, which is these 10 foundations of a lean and muscular body, which kind of just gives people a framework on how to, the things, you know, the levers I spoke about earlier, the levers that they can pull that will 
move the needle on their body. When you are doing programming, you're always meeting that person face to face or via Skype session. Or yeah, no, we've we've got a pretty extensive intake uh, form that asks a lot of questions and gets a lot of details on them. So the program is done from just the intake form, and then we also offer the opportunity if they're they you know, want to develop a specific body part, they can work with one of our coaches and send in videos of their training and we can go or or pictures first and then videos of their training. And we can always tell based on someone's pictures first and foremost, what they're doing wrong. And then obviously we can watch videos and we'll request certain videos based on the structural imbalances we see. So if if someone's doing exercise poorly, hundred percent of the time I can tell by looking at their pictures and we'll say, Hey, send me these three exercises and we'll fix them. And all of a sudden within three or four weeks, that body part looks completely different. So that's how that works. Is you know, like I said, it's it's a pretty extensive intake form based on lever lengths and based on body parts and based on previous uh, exercise history and based on injuries. And that, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's really thorough. You know, sometimes we have clients that come in, patients that come in, and are getting programs from people that they've never met, or ha- and they're yeah. not exchanging videos, and it, it's a little mind blowing to me. Yeah, it's hard, right? Like it's a hard business because obviously you can't be there with somebody. It would be the ideal scenario to have somebody come in. And that's honestly the first upsell we we have is like, hey, you know, yes, we can do a program for you, but you're welcome to come into the gym sometime. We've got a 10,000 square foot private gym in Tampa. And every month we hold camps and clinics on teaching you how to train for your body. And after that camp, the first thing is, hey, like, let's do a custom program for you. So, you know, it's always there, but it's not always a reasonable thing. I mean, we have clients all over the world from you know Europe and Australia and New Zealand and Africa and you know, literally people from all over the world coming here. So it's not always reasonable financially for everybody to make it in. So we do our best. And I completely admit that it's not always the most perfect thing, but that's the beauty of being able to change it. So you know our, our coaching, our program development is a monthly thing and it's, a, it's a re- definitely a reasonable cost for a monthly program. And if you're not seeing the results or we're not seeing the results you want, we'll change it. You know, be like, hey, well, this body part's not developing really well. Or, hey, I'm getting a little bit of pain in this body part. Well, let's change it. So it's not just a one-off, right? It's like a, an ongoing coaching model. I love it. It sounds like you have a great model and it sounds really dialed in. Where can people find you? Most typical place people find me is on my podcast, which is called the Muscle Expert Podcast, which soon enough will be called the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. My business is... Yeah, my business is Muscle Intelligence. So as you said, MI40. So you can find me at MI40 Nation, which is currently going under a massive amount of reconstruction. So bear with us while we get that done. And also BenPakulski.com is another place. And then obviously Instagram, IFBB Ben Pack is a good place to find me. Nice. Thank you so much. It's been so informative and so fun talking to you. Thanks, Emily. Likewise, I appreciate you having me. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you wanna share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, Or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.